Okay, good morning. If everybody will find their seat, that would be great. Great to have you here today. Love to hear folks share and talk um, with one another. That's great. And so, what wonderful to have you here. All right, um, so we welcome you to the chapel, especially if this is your first time with us. If you want any additional information about the chapel, when you go out the door to the right, we have like a welcome center. You can get some more information. Let me just, uh, let me give you three quick uh, announcements to keep in mind. Um, this, this today was our last day for Sunday school. We'll be taking a break then in the summer and we'll start up again in September. So if you come for Sunday school next week, God bless you, but you'll probably be sitting in a room all by yourself. All right, so, so this is our last week for Sunday school until, until the fall. Uh, second, for men in particular, we have a men's breakfast this coming Saturday at 9 o'clock. And really, really encourage you to come out. Uh, there's no cost. Just come. And a wonderful time of fellowship. We want to try to get into more of a routine, giving men some of these opportunities to get together. And men love to eat, so we figured it was, it's always a great, great way to bring them together. We also will be having a special VBS announcement at the end of the service, so I won't say anything about that right now, but you'll just be sitting there in anticipation waiting to hear what we're going to say. So, so let's look to the Lord in prayer, uh, and then we'll jump into our worship service. Father, it is a great joy to be with your people this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we can sing praises to you. Help us to think afresh about the wonders of the cross, the wonders of what you have done for us in the incarnation, in your death for us, dear Lord Jesus, raising from the grave, ruling on high, and coming back one day for us. Jesus, we thank you for that. Father, thank you for sending the Son. We pray, Lord, that our worship will honor you and will truly be from the inside out. And we pray all this because of Jesus Christ, the great lover of our soul. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Would you sing with us? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship your holy name. The sun comes up. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time. To sing your song again Whatever may pass And whatever lies before me Yes, come what may Let me be singing when the evening comes Bless the Lord Bless the Lord, oh my soul Oh my soul Worship his own Never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. 
You're rich in love. You're rich in love and you're slow to day and on that day when my strength is failing the end draws near and my time has come still my soul Never before. Well, sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I'll worship your holy name. Yes, Lord, we praise you and worship your holy name. Lord, I'll worship your holy name. holy name. This thing is coming on the clouds. He's coming on the clouds. The kings and kingdoms 
Stop the Lord. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? 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 Nothing and no one who can stop the Lord Almighty. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? Our God. Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power. For the sins of the world, his blood breaks the chain, and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before him. Yes, every knee will bow. Every tongue will claim that he's Lord.
cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree body bound and drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all
We give you glory and honor forever. God, our hearts are focused on you this morning, Lord. We thank you that you are with us. You're in this place by your spirit, ministering to us, speaking to us, teaching us, opening our eyes, Lord, to your glories. We thank you that you've saved our souls. You've forgiven us of our sins. We are set free forevermore. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? His purposes prevail. His power is immense. Nothing can stop it. His power is in our life. The power of him breaking death on the cross, of defeating our sin, is with us forever. And yes, I might go through struggles and trials. The Lord is not unaware of that. He is very aware of that. We've seen it through the Bible. We're going to see it today. And though I go through those things, Lord, there is an ultimate end to this. We know that, God, that we will see you trans... Our, our, our gaze will be transfixed on Jesus' face, that there is... There is hope coming. It's with me now. It'll be with me then. God, may we always trust and rely on you in all things. We thank you for this time of worship. We ask that you be with Pastor Tim as he speaks to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. So it's really a joy to be here with you all this morning and to have the privilege of singing praises to the Lord and then to open his word and uh, to find our hearts encouraged. So at this time, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11, okay? And children can be dismissed for junior church, all right? So Revelation 2 and verse 8. When uh, Doug was done preaching last week, for some reason, that Sunday, I had to be sitting next to my son-in-law. And he looked at me and said, how are you going to top that? I mean, who thinks like that? <laughs> My flesh is pure. <laughs> I just want you guys to know that, okay? These are the things that pastors deal with. <laughs> I know all of you probably have in-laws too, so you know what I'm talking about. So I was thinking uh, in this text that is before us today of the, the very clear and evident topic of suffering. And I was thinking back, I, all week I've been trying to come up with a, a, like an opening like what Doug usually does, right? So I was thinking, it, it just came to me like right before the service, uh, suffering through or suffering producing beauty or glory. Okay, suffering, producing beauty and glory. And that's the irony of this text, is that the pressure that has come against the church has beautified her. I thought of two things. These are my illustrations, okay? Uh, I thought of rock tumblers, okay? I don't know if you guys remember them as kids. You would buy that. I don't know. I think it was called a gem maker or something like that. And you would stick rocks inside and you would... Turn it, and the tumbling of those rocks clanking against one another would eventually bring out a beauty that was not evident in its original form. And that beauty always came out as a result of the banging and the pressure. It yielded something that would be quite magnificent and amazing compared to what it was before. Okay, 
I also thought, I, th I attended a program when I was a young boy. I think it was called Pioneer Club. I think that's what it was called. Uh, it was a Christian program. And one of the things that we would do is we would make these, uh, for lack of a better word, because I can't remember exactly what they were called, these icons. They would give you a piece of wood that was carved to the shape of, let's say, a picture of Jesus and a lamb or three crosses, something like that. And what you would do is you would take a foil of copper, lay it over top of that wood, and then they would give you a stylus, and you would push down on that copper till it was completely shaped to the image of the icon behind it. And then you would pull it off and you would feel very proud about what you had created. Okay, remember going on to my mom and said, look what I made, all right? And that transformation from somewhat flat and unattractive, not really having any beauty, by pressure is transformed into something that is attractive and even worthy of hanging on the wall. Or if it was not that pretty, it was hung on the refrigerator, right? Which meant it was temporary, okay? But in both cases, the, the, the need is pressure to produce that which has value, okay? And that same metaphor or irony carries over into the text that is before us today. It is a text that celebrates suffering, All right? And that's, that's an irony. Why would you celebrate struggle? Why would you celebrate difficulty? And this text seeks to answer that question. Why suffering that we pray away, we ought rather embrace till God has done his work in us and made us what he wants us to be. A transformation and a change that could not come apart from the pain and the suffering. So I want to read through with you uh, Revelation 2, verse 8 and following. It says, the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who was dead and came to life again. He, the one who was dead, says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, if you're listening to this right now, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, who overcomes, will not be hurt at all by the second death. I want to make a confession right up front as we begin. Okay, and that is this. Uh, I feel highly unqualified to preach this text. Uh, I would never claim that I have suffered in the sense that these people are suffering for the cause of Christ. Uh, there is nothing in my personal experience in its entirety. I know for some of you that you could speak better to this because you've been in the fire at a serious level. You felt the singeing and the scorching. 
And my aim this morning is not to speak as someone who knows personally, because I, I, I have to tell you, I don't think I can say that. But to speak the truth of God's word, because I believe that many of us throughout the duration of our lives will experience such things. Uh, I am relatively convinced, this is my personal conviction, that the church of Christ holding to biblical truth is moving into a season where we will begin to experience cost for what we believe. Okay? I just, I am sobered by that thought. And there's a sense in which we would be deeply blessed by that truth. Because as you read through this text, you will no longer want to push suffering away. But you will say, God, if I need to go into the tumbler for you to produce true eternal beauty, then come what may. So the church in Smyrna is the recipient of this letter. It's a city 40 to 50 miles north of Ephesus as the postal route would run. The city of Smyrna was the first to erect a temple to the goddess Roma. And that was... In 195 BC, 200 years before the coming of Christ, they erected a, a temple that spoke of the glory of the empire of Rome. Okay, so that was present there. Built on, it was built on a mount called Pagos. A lot of the city was on that. But at the top of this mountain, there was an encircling of six extravagant temples to pagan deities of a wide variety of kinds. The city had intimidating beauty with temples encircling. It was often called by many the pride of Asia or the crown of Asia. If you wanted to see the glory of Rome in the area of Asia, this is the city that you would go to. And you would see in it an imperial beauty with libraries and theater and stadium. It was the epitome of Rome. In AD 26, the city, this is during the time of Christ's life, this city won the right to build the temple for emperor worship in the country. It was an imperial temple where people would pledge to honor the God of Rome, who at that time would be whoever the Caesar is. I think at the time of the building of this temple, it was Tiberius. So it's a fascinating time. Cicero called Smyrna, and Cicero was a philosopher, one of the cynics thinkers of the time. He called Smyrna one of our most faithful and ancient allies. So Rome's view of Smyrna was that they had pledged the highest degree of loyalty to the empire itself. They were at truly an imperial city with a lot of influence and a lot of intimidating pressure for people that lived there. Most of the people that lived there tended to long to have municipal, what one writer called municipal influence. They wanted to mean something. They wanted to be valued by the culture in which they lived. And that desire to be valued could be overwhelming, corrupting, and devastating to one's life and principles. Pressure to participate in this city was high. I mean, how could you not? Loyalty to Rome was held in high regard, often unprincipled and pragmatic. Meaning, whatever it takes to win favor in Smyrna, you do. And if you stand against that, and you in any way 
tarnish the, the, the reputation of loyalty in the eyes of Rome based on this city, you would experience a consequence for that disloyalty and potential shame. It's interesting that in verse 8 it says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. Some translations may say the Alpha and Omega, the one that is the beginning and will be there at the end. And in the midst of the, the existence of this one, there is this city that seems like it will stand forever. Many never expected to see the Roman Empire fall. The power of it, the glory of it, all of these satellite cities proclaiming how beautiful and powerful. The implication came to be that this would last forever. This beautiful Roman Empire. So everything that was built was built to last. Everything visible seemed invincible. But there's only one, and that's the one that stands behind this letter that is truly invincible. And that is the one who says, I was there at the beginning, and I'll be there after, after. Okay? And he says, I'm writing to you. In the midst of a city that seems so stable, substantial, trustworthy, and alluring. Jesus writes and speaks in a shocking way. So as we go through this letter that is written to the church in Smyrna. And I want you to get this. It's written to the church in Smyrna, but it is recorded for us. Okay? These seven letters written to churches specifically, but they're preserved for us. Meaning there is a message bound up in these texts that aims to transform your life today. Okay? And that's why the text is covered with this beatitude. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this book, who understands and knows how to live in light of the things that are exposed, in light of the promises that are given and the troubles that are foretold. Blessed is the one who is cognizant of what life is really going to be like as we strive to be God's people in a fallen world. So the question I want to ask is this, how do we remain faithful how do we sustain hope in the midst of a world that is decidedly against the core basic values that we as Christians hold? And the way that that's going to be handled in this text is through, I, I wanted to call this the four ironies, but then I, was, I, I thought, well, maybe for a lot of us, the word irony, is, it doesn't have the level of clarity. It's really four contrast, but they're contrasts that are ironic. Okay, so we're going to work through the verses. Each verse contains one of these contrasts or ironies. And as we focus on them, I think we will find hope in how we can stand when opposition is present in our lives. Verse 9 says this. This is God speaking to the church. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And you can pick up with the first irony. is pretty blazingly clear all right you are poor and yet you are rich the word that's used here for afflictions is the idea of crushing it is uh kind of similar to that that rock gem thing okay the breaking and the pressure tends to form something different okay and the idea of this text is that the tribulations or the afflictions are in plural 
which I think at some level starts to indicate that they are habitual. They are the norm. They could be spoken of as something that's experienced in various avenues of life for the church in Smyrna. Okay, so it was a place of poverty or of pressure. The result of the pressure in this case seems to be the poverty that they were experiencing. So the, the pressure that came against the church to compromise, to acquiesce, to be Roman citizens rather than citizens of the kingdom of God led to loss. And this is one of those truths that I think at one level it's hard for us and at the same level you probably know people in your personal experience who would not cave on biblical principle as a child of God and therefore they experienced a loss for that stand. Maybe that's happened in your life. It's fascinating to me that this deep poverty, and this, the word that's used here for poor carries this idea of being destitute, not having anything. The level of loss that they experienced was devastating to family life and personal wealth. They were materially, materially destitute. They were experiencing economic deprivation. And the question is, what caused that in Rome? and particularly in the city of Smyrna. And I think in Smyrna, it becomes pretty clear that it was the failure to be loyal at all cost because you had the imperial temple there and the obligation was to go into that temple on a somewhat, typically it was an annual basis and you were to cast incense upon the altar and pledge full allegiance to the fact that Caesar was Lord of your life. Okay, that runs directly contrary to what a Christian would proclaim, that Christ is Lord, that my allegiance is not to the nation, it's not to the imperial authority, it is to Christ. And to do that would be to blaspheme the name of Christ. It would be to dishonor the one who would pay so much for your redemption and for your forgiveness. And the result of that, failure to say a few words was exclusion from trade guilds. That is the kind of the, the markets of the time. They experienced confiscation of property. They were marginalized, often lost jobs and influence and place in culture. And we know from what we know of what was going on in, at the time these letters are written that there was the real possibility of death and physical pain. That's what was threatened against the church. When I read this, this is the honest thought that's often in my mind. I don't like to be disapproved. I don't like it when people simply don't like me. Right? And sometimes we think, oh, they don't like my convictions. They don't accept my convictions. And we feel put off by such a pathetic level of opposition. Right? We acquiesce to maintain approval. We laugh at the joke or we, we use the language because we want to be people of our culture. No, what we really want to do is avoid suffering. What we really want to avoid is being stigmatized as one of them. Sometimes people say to me, are you a Bible banger? <laughs> so give me a definition. Well, I mean, do you like believe that all of it's true? I'm like, yeah, I'm one of them. Okay? The reason they say it to you in that way is to pressure you to hope that you're not that. And even that amount of pressure causes many of us to back away and go into self-protection. 
rather than to trust God and to walk into the situation that he has sovereignly brought before us. They were poor, but they were rich. And this is the irony of the text. We tend to resent the struggle, to resent the pressure. But it's fascinating that the city of Smyrna was named after something called myrrh, a precious uh, resin that was aromatic, often used for burial, highly valued. The only way you could get that resin was by severe cutting of the, of the bush, the shrub, six to ten foot tall. You would cut it repeatedly and you would squeeze out through pressure what would then be crystallized and would need to be crushed in order for its true value to appear. It's ironic, isn't it? That for this church, the pressure that came against her, the repeated wounding and crushing was bringing out its true value. It's amazing that Jesus would say to the church in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So folks, this church went through suffering because they wouldn't show loyalty. That suffering manifested itself finally or ultimately in the loss of everything. And Jesus looks at them and says, oh, they call you poor. They call you impoverished, but you are rich. May God help us to lay hold of the true value of suffering, of pressure, because it tends to bring out the, the, the true work of the Spirit of God in our lives. It tends to flow out of us when we are broken so that the light of Christ can be manifest in our lives. Hebrews 10 verse 34 helps us to know that this is in fact the meaning of this text. Listen to what Hebrews 10 34 says. It says, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken away, that's confiscation. You accepted it with joy. Just stop. Just stop. When everything you had was taken away, you accepted it with joy. I'm not there. I mean, I complain about taxes. Okay, the most irritating thing about taxes is not what they're used for. For me, it's that they got it from me. Okay, we don't even like to do that. We consider that suffering. There are Christians, I have friends that think paying taxes is suffering. Okay? And I'm like, dude, like you are not reading your Bible. Like, I mean, you may not like it. I don't think you can rightly call it suffering. I think it's why the Apostle Paul says, warn those who are rich. Warn them. And what's the warning? The warning is this. You can be materially poor and yet rich, and you can have material prosperity and live an impoverished life, a pathetic life that does nothing for the kingdom of God and will have no lasting value. When you're gone, people won't even give you a thought because you thought it was all about accumulating. We all are, we're tempted to this in a culture, in the land of opportunity, we're tempted to think that achieving something has eternal value. Folks, when you die, it is all left behind. And these people have come to a place where they realized that that loss was actually gain. And Jesus says to his church, which he's blazing eyes at, and he sees them, and he was there at the beginning, he'll be there at the end. He says, they call you poor, 
but I call you rich. And here's what happens. When I understand where my true riches lie, okay, when, I, when, I, when I get that and I, and, I, and, I, and I grasp that, I have come to the place where I know that there are better things waiting for us. And here's the way he says it in Hebrews. He says, things that last forever. Folks, that's the contrast. Every temporal accomplishment, every temporal gift, right? All of my bank accounts, everything I treasure will one day become meaningless. Okay? That's what suffering does. Brings a whole lot of beautiful clarity into our lives. I want to say this quick because there is a curse on the church in America called the prosperity gospel. The lie that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. God wants you to have the best, and if you simply believe the best, God will give you the best. How can you read this text and believe that lie? That the more you live to honor God, the more you're going to get, and that should be your prime motivation. That is a disgusting perversion. Of the cross work of Jesus Christ. The solution for the church in Smyrna. Was not an infusion of money. It was remembering that Christ is Lord. And he sees it all. And it's all under his control. And he's working through our suffering. To glorify his name. Through your life. And that has eternal consequence. And benefit. Jesus said even when. You're rich, your life does not consist of your wealth. And it's so easy in our culture to feel that way. That I'm doing better because I have more. Jesus says, if that's what you believe, you are poor. You're not rich. But to the person that may have or not have, but knows that to have Christ is everything. Jesus looks at them and says, you may be called poor. You may feel poor. But I want you to know that you are rich in me. You're rich in your relationships in the body of Christ. So the psalmist said in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures that last forever. I want you to think about that. What suffering does is it helps me to see more clearly that truth. Okay, and to treasure the truth of who Christ is and that he sees all that's going on in my life and that he is decidedly for me. Second half of verse nine says this. It says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's a fascinating verse. Pretty strong, right? A synagogue of Satan under the sway, under the influence, under the delusion of a false gospel. The way I'm going to capture this irony or contrast is this. Jesus is saying to the church, you are accused, yet vindicated. You are charged, but you are exonerated. He says, I know the slander of those. What is slander? Well, slander is an exaggerating and misrepresentation with the desire to accuse 
and tear down. See, slander is a lie. It doesn't mean that it doesn't contain some truth, but it is truth laced with lies that lead to an opposite conclusion. And so what's happening here, Jesus says, first of all, about the opposition, he says, I know who you are. A synagogue was a gathering of God's people. It's where God-fearers got together and honored God. And there was one of them in every one of the cities that we're talking about. There was a place where Jewish believers met to love, honor, and glorify God. In Smyrna, the synagogue had become corrupt. The, The gathering of God's people had been contaminated. It had been deeply influenced by this idea of loyalty to Rome for personal benefit. And if we just tone things down a little bit, we'll maintain our influence. And for those within the congregation, for those within the synagogue who won't comply, we will slander them. We will expose them. Think of this. We will push them into suffering. It's a fascinating thought. Jesus says, I know who your opposition is, ultimately driven by who? By the father of lies. Right? Because if there's anything we could say, we could say Satan is a liar. Maybe you hear some of the lies that he casts against you on a regular basis. You need to learn to take up the shield of faith, trembling but heroic. As you face and confront those things, Jesus says, I know who they are and I know what they say. The tactic slander, trying to say that their lack of allegiance to the emperor as Lord actually meant that they were subversive to the government. There were a lot of lies that were said about the early church since they ate what was called the body and blood of Christ. Some accused them of being cannibals in early literature. Okay, they were obviously not what they were doing, but they were slandered that those things were taken slightly twisted, which brought ire against the church, brought persecution against the church and suffering. They used Roman loyalty and bias against the church. You know, why did they do that to them? You know why they did it? They wanted them to calm down. They wanted them to back off a little bit and not take things so seriously. Acquiesce a little bit and we will prolong our life in Rome. And we will retain our influence in Rome. And we'll be able to hang on to our checking accounts in Rome. And we can go to the guilds and trade for food. Your perspective is dangerous. It's just a few words and you can hear it. Go in the temple. Act like you're paying allegiance to Caesar when you're really not. Just throw the words, cast a little incense and everything's fine. Why are you taking it so seriously? You can feel it, right? The temptation for the early church under pressure was to assimilate to take on a little bit of Rome, but not enough to contaminate your heart to the degree that you felt guilty about it. Good luck. Good luck. And I've been there. Good luck. Oh, a little compromise. Oh, it'll eat your spiritual life. I wonder this morning, what is your temptation? For a young person, what kind of pressure are you facing?
to cave just a little to retain your position in your peer group because you can't imagine being without it. I'm going to tell you something. You can have your peer group or you can have Jesus. You can't have both. You can't have both. Now, if you get a peer group who loves Jesus, then you've got both. Okay? There is the temptation to compromise to meet a need in my life. But when the need is met through an ungodly means, it will eat me up. Say this to young people that are dating. What you need to find is someone that loves Jesus more than you. That's what you need to find. And don't compromise to get what you're longing for. Because it will destroy your life. Get what God has for you. Do you understand? Don't go for what you want. A man, a woman to make me complete. Find a man or woman who loves God more than you. And then you will be complete. Don't assimilate. Don't do what so many do. Compromise to get what I really want. And to be unhappy with it. Sad. Better to not, what you, to not have what you want and be happy. Than to have what you want and be unhappy. And this church made the right choice. They didn't compromise to have acceptance. And I love verse 9 because God says, I know. That's how this verse starts. I know. The idea is I see everything that's happening to you. I know the slander that you're facing. The tearing down of your reputation. I, the one who was and is and is to come. I see it all. I am fully aware. You know, I remember when our kids were little. There's something about us that needs to know that when injustice is done, somebody knows. So your kids can be playing in the room next to the kitchen. And all of a sudden you hear someone screaming. Because Johnny had the nerve to take my toy. And you know why they scream for you? They want you to come in and make it right. They want you to know that Johnny is a bad boy. You know what Jesus is saying to the church? I already know. Had a camera in that room. I saw it all. I saw it all. Great is your reward. Verse 10 says this. It says, do not be afraid of what you were about to suffer. And folks, I don't, just stop for a second. Okay. You're poor, but you're rich. You're slandered, yet exonerated. And it's going to get worse. That's what this text says. So another time to stop and say, is it about me having my good life now? The answer is not according to God's word. The answer according to God's word is, God, you bring what is needed in my circumstance, in my city where I live, and use me. And to this church, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. And then he tells them what's coming. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. I want you to think about this text very quickly. The contrast is this. The church is suffering, but not afraid. 
Suffering, but not afraid. Trouble's coming, but don't be afraid. This is the most consistently given command in the New Testament. And I think I've never, never taken the time, okay? But I'm pretty sure that the command, trust me, do not be afraid, is the most pervasive command in Scripture. I'm absolutely confident that that is true in the Gospels. That the reply of Christ over and over and over and over again, when the disciples are facing frustrating, difficult, costly circumstances, his response is regularly, oh, don't be afraid. The implication of that is, I've got this. I know what you're going through. It's going to get a little worse. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And what that tells me simply is this. It tells me that Tim Hoff is not to make decisions based upon what I fear. Does that make sense? If you make decisions based on your feared outcomes, you will live paralyzed. Analysis will destroy you. When you have an opportunity before you to make the right decision, to do the right thing, to take the right stand, you should not think about it. That's what fear does. That's why Proverbs says, the fear of man brings a snare. It will trip you up. It will stumble you. If you're afraid of what people can say about you, will say about you, or what they can do to you, you will live a paralyzed life. And you will completely lose the influence that God designs for you. This church was called to be suffering, but not afraid. It tells me that their suffering in this context was real. Some of you will be put in prison by the devil, meaning the devil will bring about slanderous lies about your loyalty to the powers that be. And when you stand for truth, that lie will take you to jail. And we know from historic literature that that was common. We know from the book of Acts that the disrupted Jewish community of, of, the, of the days of the apostles used the Roman government against the believers to put them in jail and in some cases to kill them. And Jesus says, I am fully aware of what you're going through. Your suffering is real in prison to test you. The idea there simply is this, to break you down and to get you to give up on your conviction and to become a citizen of the country. That was the pressure. And it's often so subtle. I mean, I, I, I like bold challenges. I like it when things are clear. I hate when I have to sit there and say, I don't know what to do. Right? And when, you know what, what, what John is saying to them, the, the, what you're going to face, it'll be clear. Because the pressure will intensify. And it will require that you stand in the power of Christ. But this text also tells me, at the end of the verse, watch what it says. It says, you will suffer persecution. That's flip, that's pressure to change you. But you will only suffer it for 10 days. The question obviously is, why 10 days? There's two simple possibilities. One is that it just simply says that your season of suffering is somewhat extended and limited. Okay, does that make sense? The other possible interpretation, because a lot of the imagery in, these, in this letter and in these letters, the book of Revelation as a whole, is taken from the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel chapter 1, you'll find that the, the, the four young Jewish men who are standing up against the imperial authority and say, we won't eat your food because it was devoted to the gods. We won't. 
And here's what they say. They say, give us vegetables. This would be one of the most deepest sufferings of my life. <laughs> they said, give us vegetables. And they asked for one other thing. You know what they asked for? 10 days. 10 days. And we'll see if God intervenes. We'll see if God moves heaven and earth to produce a result that could only be owing to him. Here's the cool thing. The people that said, I'm in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. The one that stepped in to the struggle for 10 days got the price. Those that compromised and said, it's just the king's meat. Yeah, it was offered to idols, but we're not doing that, so why does it matter? Daniel and his friends were like, oh no, it matters. What we do on this day for 10 days will determine the trajectory of the rest of our lives. And the rest of the story is stunning. They threw themselves upon the creative power of a God who has been there from the beginning, who will be there at the end, who was right there with them in that test. And after 10 days, they were fully exonerated. Isn't that beautiful? They will test you. I will exonerate you. They'll accuse you. I will pardon you. Beauty in this text that is so amazing. Suffering is part of faithful Christ following. Jesus said to his disciples, if you're coming after me, you must say goodbye to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me to a hill called Golgotha. You, to follow Christ, you got to be ready to pay serious prices. And the church of Smyrna was all in. And in the face of imperial pressure, they were standing. Why? I think it's captured in the words of a song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. The things that you are longing to keep will become disposable in the light of his glory and grace. Folks, what I need to do is maintain verse 8 in my mind. A risen Lord who was there at the beginning, who will be there at the end, and covers the 10 days in between. And he's calling me to trust him. And should it lead to the ultimate price, this is the last contrast. We are dying, yet victorious. Second part of verse 10 says this, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the victor's crown. That is life. Folks, I want you just to think. God says, you, you lay down your life, I will give you a crown that is life itself. You lose your temporary life for the cause and I will give you everything you could ever imagine. The highest cost that any one of us could pay is death. It is the ultimate price. And Jesus says, I will give you life as a victor's crown. This is not the diadem, the gold crown. This is the laurel wreath. The laurel wreath is what athletes competed for. 
Okay, it's what they struggled for. It's what they disciplined their lives for so that when they got on the track or they got in the ring, they, they were able to be victorious. And through the struggle, they would emerge with this crown. That's why the apostle Paul says, I want to hear one thing at the end of my life. If it costs me my life, I'm good. I want to hear one thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. What is it? Enter into the joy of the Lord. Folks, the reason we don't pay a price is because we want to hang on to temporary joy. Paul says, I want to enter into eternal joy. I want pleasures that last forever. Why do we at times trade eternal benefit for temporary pleasure? Because we're stupid. <laughs> we're foolish. We we buy into the agenda of the world that we live in. We tend to pledge loyalty, the loyalty to the current circumstance. I want to get the paycheck. I want to get the increase in pay. I want to get the promotion. If I get to compromise a little bit to get it, so be it. May God help us to read this text. You know, it's interesting that probably from what we know in the book of Acts and in other places, many Christians caved for temporary pleasure of Smyrna. Think about that. That ancient city, the crown of Asia, has been wiped out. And Itzmer, I think, is the Turkish city that's there today. I think it's a population of about 50,000 people. But Smyrna's gone. It's gone. The crown of Asia, gone. Temporary. Incorruptible. These simple thoughts to close. I am afraid that we are fairly adept at avoiding struggle. I fear this. I fear that we have gotten very crafty as the church at avoiding struggle. At avoiding consequences for our faith. I'm fairly confident that there are things that Doug or James and I may say in this pulpit one day, it's true in Canada already, there are things that we can say in this pulpit that would become very costly. There are, for people that do counseling, there are prohibitions. If you are a paid counselor in the state of New Jersey and you cross line X, you're done. Lost a job, lost a certification. Okay? Particularly in the realm of moral issues. Okay? It is, for your job, fatal. Okay? It's already there. I feel confident that people are in the realm of teaching, people that are in the realm of the medical field, that you're going to face choices. And I think we need to be ready to face those choices. You know how you prepare for those big choices? For a young person, you do it every day when you go to school. You say, today, Lord, I want to honor you. I'm going to walk in your path. And if people don't like me because of it, I can live with that. Because it glorifies you. Some of us in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our families, we, there's pressure. Pressure, decisions that come. We're doing the right thing is going to cost you. Are you ready? 
In this world, we are opposed. Jesus said, in this world, you will suffer persecution, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That is not an invitation to the church to unnecessarily stir up trouble. But there are times that when we as a church are being light, that it will cause friction. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to be ready to wisely stand for the glory of God. Standing true at times may lead to struggle. And we know the source of that is from the evil one, 1 Peter 5, 8. Secondly, I want to say this about suffering and these, these ironies, these contrasts. This text at the beginning and then in verse 11 is powerful. It says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who is victorious, they will not be hurt at all by the second death. In verse 8, it talks about Jesus as the one who died and came to life again. Okay, so what it does is it makes resurrection prominent in the context where suffering may lead to termination of life. Hard for us to grasp, but I understand that. But this truth builds out into other places in our lives. There are struggles that you will go through. It can be physical struggles. It can be emotional struggles, relational struggles, financial struggles. There are a whole lot of struggles that you go through that will have the blessing in your life of weakening your grip on temporal things and increasing your grip on eternal things. Okay, that's the beauty of suffering. Okay, that there, there is, according to this text... I have no pressure, I have no struggle, poverty, sickness, or death, that my future resurrection in Jesus Christ will not resolve. And as Paul, as, as the writer of the letter, as John writes to this church, he's saying to them, if you keep in mind the resurrection of Christ, you will realize that there is no problem, no struggle in your life, no cost that you pay that is not resolved by the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that one day you will participate in. And the other beauty is found in verse 11. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious. Who overcomes. Who stays faithful. And, and the, the, the point of this text is that perseverance and continuance, faithfulness in Christ, is evidence of conversion. It is not the means of conversion. All right? The means of my salvation, the means of my changed heart is the glorious work of God through the work of Christ. Saving, changing, giving new birth. But the evidence of that, if you say, well, how do I, how do I know if I'm truly converted? Here's the way you know according to the book of Revelation and also according to the book of Hebrews. Continuance. Faithful Christ following marks the life of true believers. And that's why this text says to the one who overcomes, i.e. a true believer, manifest in their true belief by how they live, not saved by how they live, but their being saved, their being born from above is manifested in the fact that their life is decidedly different than it used to be. That's how you know you're saved. There is this continuance and desire to love and know God. And when that is true, he says that you will not be hurt by the second death. You can go to Revelation 21 and verse 8 and you can find that the second death is defined as final and full separation from God in everlasting flames. That's the way it's stated there. And his promise to the church is if you 
prove out in your response to trials that you truly love me and that you truly are loyal to me and faithful. You will never be hurt by final separation from God. Why? Because on Calvary's cross, Jesus Christ endured separation from his father. What I deserve from my sin is broken fellowship from God. That's what I deserve. But through the cross of Christ, he has borne the separation, the judgment that I deserve. He has borne my hell in his body on the tree so that my soul could be redeemed and saved for his glory. So may God help us to, as we come to the end of this passage, to realize that true riches and true hope is ultimately found in a relationship with God. And if you do not have a relationship with God, here's what the text clearly is implying. That to die without Christ is to get what you perhaps ultimately wanted. And that is life without God. You heard his call. You heard the invitation. You contemplated the cost of following Christ and chose not to. And God gives you what you ultimately wanted, and that is life without him forever. Folks, Christ died on the cross to bear my separation from God. On the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because of Tim Hoff's sin. I forsook you so that Doug Finkebeiner would not be forsaken. So you think about that. That Savior who stood in your place and suffered immeasurably, virtually infinitely, says to you, for a little while, be faithful. I see it all. And one day I will give you the reward of life itself as a gift from my hand. May God help us as the church to be faithful, to be loyal, to not cave to the the allure of compromise to get a little more of what doesn't last. May help us to to stand faithful for the cause of Christ. Folks, I know it's hard. I know it. I live in a bubble. Doug teaches at a Christian school. We live in a bit of a bubble. But here's what I'm saying. Those pressures are coming and intensifying more in those contexts as well. We're standing, we'll have a cost. May God help us to stand faithfully for him until the day that he returns. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, I thank you that though you were rich, yet for my sake you became poor, so that through your poverty I might become poor rich. Lord, my prayer simply this morning is if someone is here who has never responded to the call of Christ, for whatever reason, for whatever thing they fear might happen if they do, I pray today, God, that you would show them that there is an eternal hell to be avoided, an eternal life to be gained through the faith in the cross work of Jesus. And God, I pray that right where they are right now, where they're sitting, that you would give them the gift of repentance. You would give them the gift of faith to trust you and you would cause them right where they sit simply to acknowledge their sin and to know that in Christ there's hope. That I can be forgiven, I can be redeemed and I can have hope of life with God.
Lord, for those of us that know you, how much we need the strength of your spirit to help us to stand. To stand. To help us to do that for your glory, I pray. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to sing a beautiful closing song that captures this theme so well. Out of the depths I cry to you In darkest places I will call Incline your ear to me anew And hear my cry for mercy you to count. Were you to count my sinful ways? How could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone. I will Put your hope in God alone. So put your hope in God alone. Take courage in His power to save. Completely and forever one. By Christ emerging from the grave. I will.
announcement now from, uh, from Sherry about VBS. You can be seated. Okay. Good morning, church. Um, first, I would like to um, thank everyone who has stepped up to volunteer for VBS. I am just overwhelmed by the number of people that we have serving that week. It is absolutely amazing. And God has just put together um, the right people in the right spots, even things that we didn't think we would be able to have because we didn't have the right volunteers last minute. Um, God said, don't worry, I've got it and put those people in those places. So um, thanks to everybody. Um, Christina, how many shirts did we order? Like 50? Yeah, so I think we have nearly 50 volunteers. It's absolutely amazing. So thank you. That's it's just so awesome to um, have people who really um, want to see this outreach because it really can impact not only those children, but the families as well. So I do have a few announcements. Um, the first is that we are accepting donations. I actually have a lot of people who come up to me like the weeks prior to VBS and say, Sherry, like I really am not in the spot to volunteer, like whether, you know, like they're in a different phase of life, um, different stage. You know, but I would like to donate. Is there something I can bring to help you for the week? So um, Ashley put together a list of some of the snack supplies that she would need, and it just helps us. Um, it's not even really like a money thing. It's more of just then one of us doesn't have to go out and do all this extra shopping, because believe me, we've been doing a lot of shopping as it is. Um, so. We tried it through Sign Up Genius by learning that not everybody's tech savvy. So we did it the old fashioned way and I have a big poster board outside. And basically it's got a lot of sticky notes on it and you can sign up for something that you'd like to bring. So it could be like two cases of water, um, three packs of string cheese, things like that that they need for the week. And when you pull the sticky note off, there's actually a spot underneath to sign your name. So then we know who to kind of go after if we don't like, hey, can you remember? You're supposed to bring in cheese sticks. We really need them. No. Um, so that's outside and more than half the tags have already been taken this morning upon coming in. So if you didn't see that, um, please stop by the VBS table on your way out. Um, and I did separate it. There's like a probably a quarter or a third of the page says for those of you who'd like to cook but apparently not a lot of people like to cook or they just didn't see that. So it's like things like sending in a tossed salad a day that we need tossed salad. That's for the volunteers. We feed our help. It's very important. Um, uh, homemade mac and cheese. Somebody did take that like to bring one day for one of the um, side dishes, pasta salad, coleslaw, things like that. Um, if that stuff isn't provided, we'll just go out and buy it. Um, but again, it just saves us the time of having to do that. And then like, two-thirds of the paper says, or the poster board, for those who would prefer to shop. And 
almost all those tags are gone. So I'm getting the hint that people would much rather shop. <laughs> so um, again, just stop by our table. You'll see the big poster board with a whole bunch of things. Some people did use Sign Up Genius, thank you. But I think it just kind of got lost in the email um, because this was, I guess, much more concrete. Um, one need that we still do have, if you are available on Monday, June 20th, that's the first day of VBS. Um, I put out to my volunteers since the day before. We, we typically set up on Sunday, but that's Father's Day. So I don't want anybody who needs to spend time with their dad or anybody who is a dad to need to give up any time on Father's Day. So instead, we're going to decorate the, all of the rooms on Monday. So it is going to be crunch time because Monday night starts VBS. So we're going to do that from one to three. I do have a few people who said, you know, they're teachers, they're done already by that time so that they would be able to come and help. If we had five or six people, two hours max. I mean, it would just be really quick with the more people that come. So if you're interested and able to help with that, please come see me after church. I think right now there's only three of us. So I would really like to double that so we can just hang the stuff up that needs to be hung, decorate the doors, and I would like to be done by three so you guys have like a few hours before we need to be back at night. And then last but not least, and probably most importantly, I would just urge everyone to cover VBS in prayer. Um, just um, praying for all of our volunteers that God would keep everyone healthy for that week, um, energized, um, giving everyone patience for the little ones, um, and that God would, you know, touch our volunteers so that they in turn would be able to touch the children. Um, I pray for the, I would ask you to pray for the children that they would come to us with open hearts so that they can hear um, God's message and um, for in turn their families because a lot of the kids that will be coming are not churched. So if we can reach them, we then have the opportunity to reach the families because they'll hopefully be coming on Sunday for VBS Sunday where the kids will perform the songs. So it really does have like a trickle down effect. So I'm just going to read a prayer that I found and um, close with that prayer. But if you guys would keep these specific prayers in mind um, throughout the next week and a half to two weeks, we'd really appreciate it. Okay. Um, this is from Matthew 5:16. Let your light shine so others can see it. Then they will see the good things you do, and they will bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I thought that was perfect because our theme is shine this year. Um, our biggest prayer to God is that you would be glorified and that the light of Jesus would shine um, from us onto these young children. Um, Lord, we lift up our volunteers. We ask that you would place the Holy Spirit within them, give them energy, grace, and compassion as they lead, care for, and most importantly, um, share the love of Jesus with the children. Lord, we pray for the children attending. Um, you already know so many have signed up, Lord, and we'd like that number to double. So, Lord, we pray that you would send us more children. Um, we pray that their hearts would be open and that they would feel the love of Jesus through us here at the chapel. Um, Lord, we pray for the parents and guardians of those children, um, that they would have the opportunity to see Christ um, through the week of VBS, um, through their children, through our volunteers, through the people who come in contact with them. Um, and Lord, not only all of our volunteers, but everyone here at the chapel who has helped in any way with our VBS, Lord, we just pray that... Um, 
the members of our church would remember to lift everyone up in prayer. Um, Lord, we thank you for placing all of these volunteers in the right positions, and we just pray for a successful week. Um, and most importantly, Lord, that God would be glorified and that um, people would come to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you.